Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of Women Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Nav. In today's episode, we speak to Tamsin Hankey, architect and founder of this studio, about passive house accreditation what needs to be considered pre-design and what architects need to be aware of when sourcing appropriate materials. Tamsin previously lived in Iceland, working for a local landscape-driven design practice when not skiing across frozen Arctic landscapes. She is currently a senior teaching fellow at the Bartlett School of Architecture. So thanks very much for joining us this afternoon, Tamsin. Appreciate your time. Thanks for inviting me. We're talking about all things passive house today. So let's start right at the beginning and ask you, what is a passive house building? So passive house, in very simple terms, is an energy standard. We have energy standards that we're required to build to in the UK and around the world under the building regulations. But this is an optional one that's far above the national requirements. The outcome being a very low energy building that requires a tiny amount of energy for both space heating or cooling. So it kind of stays at a very consistent temperature without any energy use throughout the year. That sounds a very noble approach, but it can't be as easy as you make it sound. So what are the challenges of passive house design? The major challenge, particularly as an urban operator, I would say we're doing a lot of buildings in central London here. Space is at an absolute minimum and it takes space. You have to use a lot of space to make these buildings as insulated as they can be and up to the standard. It needs a huge amount of attention to detail in the early stages to make sure that everything's kind of planned out in advance. There aren't things that can be retrofitted in if you decide to do them later on site. It needs to be planned out very, very far in advance that this is the approach that you're going to take. So first principles apply right from the beginning of the planning of the building. And when you say right at the beginning, That means that somebody needs to understand this is what they want right from first thoughts. Exactly, yes. And really from the planning of before the project has even started to be designed, the client needs to decide or the architect needs to propose that this is going to be a passive house project. When we were talking from basic principles in terms of how the building is oriented to the north and south makes a really big difference. If you put great big windows on a west face it's going to get really overheated. And if you don't put any windows on the south face, you're not going to get enough solar gain in the building. So it's very, very simple, which way is the building going to face kind of planning. So that's why right from the outset of the project, it needs to be decided. Having said that, there is a passive house energy standard, which is the Enerfit standard, which is for um, refurbishment and renovation. So it can be something that's applied to an existing building, not just to a new build building. But again, from the planning of the project, it's so fundamental into the design that it does need to be thought of right from the beginning. Okay. And you said you need a lot of space for these types of builds. How much difference is there in what would be a traditional house wall to a passive house wall? So there's the sort of, let's say, two main things that, that need to be tackled to make um, a passive house. The one is the insulation requirement, and then the one is the air tightness requirement. So in terms of the insulation, so the wall thickness, there are a number of different approaches that can be taken um, in terms of where the insulation goes and what it's made out of. But for example, we're using on one project an internal wall system. So it's, it's a pumped insulation. It's made from cellulose, which is largely recycled paper. 
So the way that that kind of plays out is that where normally you would have a wall that might be 30 centimetres thick, it's got about 120 millimetres of insulation and the rest is structure. In this instance, we have 36 centimetres of structure, but the structure zone is also where the insulation goes, so it gets kind of pumped in between the structure, and then we insulate on top of that externally. So where a wall might be, say, 25 centimetres to 30 centimetres end-to-end, we end up with a wall that's closer to half a metre thick. So that's, that's the kind of key thing with the insulation. And then the air tightness is, it's really a membrane that we don't, normally use that rigidly to give you a a kind of analogy of it in normal buildings under normal building regulations the amount of gap that you can have cumulatively around the building so little cracks between the walls and the window or cracks where the windows don't close properly might be something about the size of a cash machine and in a passive house those cumulatively can be about the size of a credit card so we're making a building that's got no gaps really in it anywhere on the inside and that's continuous and what that means is that you don't get heat that just bleeds through the wall all of the air in the building is is recirculated we use uh, mechanical ventilation which is an, an mvhr system and what that does is uses the stale warm air that leaves a room to heat up the cool fresh air that's being brought into the room so rather than heating a room and letting cold air kind of leak out and continuously heating air you're really using a kind of heating system that's recycling any heat that you do need to put into the building. And some of these points sound quite exacting. Does this mean it's impossible or very, very difficult to retrofit passive house standards into public buildings, such as hospitals and schools? It's possible from a retrofit perspective. The NFIT standard, which is the kind of passive house refurbishment or renovation standard, is a bit more forgiving than the new build standard. But obviously the the challenge is where do you put that insulation? If you've got a sort of solid nine-inch brick wall, where are you going to put this insulation that's going to upgrade it? But there's some really interesting new products that are on the market, like aerogels, which are very, very thin, very high-performing insulations that can be used internally to renovate a building and again membranes and things that can be used to seal up a building. I think what I find very interesting about the passive house standard is what it means to see what's possible in terms of what we could do better. I think at the moment there's such a huge gap between the passive house standard and British building regulations that it sort of puts the building regulations to shame because it is possible to do all of this and it's not phenomenally expensive and what we're trying to do with new build schools and and hospitals and things like that are so far away from what could be done that we're spending a lot of money heating buildings that could be thought of more from first principles as having some of these passive house standards rather than always needing the accreditation. So I think it's sort of a, a really great step or gateway forward in what could we do better in our building regulations. Hmm. And why do you think passive houses are not being taken up more widely? I think it's intimidating. I think that the passive house has gained a reputation for being limiting because the products that are available to buy at the moment haven't got a huge market. Things like the windows. So for a passive house window, they're triple glazed. Um, and they have seals to test so that they seal against both positive and negative pressure. So what that means is that they have rubber seals all the way around the window that work if you blow at them or if you suck from the room, so that they're sealing from both directions. Those windows, there just isn't a huge availability of windows that are made like that. 
because we haven't got a huge requirement for them. Um, but I'm sitting in a room here with single glazed, uh, critical metal frames. So all heat that comes into the room is, is just going out through these windows. Whereas if we had a passive house standard window, we would heat the office probably a fifth of the amount that, that we need to. So I, I think a lot of the reason that the take-up is low at the moment is just the market isn't there yet to push a widening availability of these products. And, and probably, yes, they are more expensive. than the initial investment is more expensive than it would be if you didn't use them. But I think you have to kind of calculate that against the long-term savings that can be made, particularly in, in kind of energy bills. Hmm. And how do you think the market can be developed for Passive House? So these products are more widely available and the research and the development continues to go into them. I think generally it could do with a larger take up and support from planning policies to try and encourage people to invest in some of these products, not necessarily to get passive house certification, but to improve the standard of their building. We find often with renovation and refurbishment projects that in the latter stages of the project, the things that get cut through value engineering the client tends to be steering towards, well, I can't really see the insulation, so I'd rather spend the money on the tiles than the insulation. And I think that there needs to be legislation in place to encourage that to take place. And then I think clients could be really pushed to spend their money where it matters for the long-term interest of the planet. What got you interested in passive house building? It, it was twofold. We're really interested in kind of materials and technology in the, the office, and that often manifests itself as, as digital technologies and crafting. But we were very curious about this building science side of the the industry that, that maybe it doesn't get taught at architecture school and it's a whole other way of, of thinking about architecture. And then we had a client that came to us that was, she wanted to work with us as designers, but she really, really wanted a passive house. So we said, well, look, hang on for six months and we'll do some training and we'll come back to you and, and tell you if we can do it or not. So we retrained in the area. And I think it's been very interesting for us because we approach projects, I mean, both directors, both myself and Sash, who run and founded the practice, we both teach it, me at the Bartlett in UCL and, and Sash at London Med. And these areas of architecture are just never discussed in schools. It's things about, you know, how moisture is moved around a wall and, and how it affects timber structures. And I think it was a real eye-opener doing that course that we don't know as much about how buildings are performing than we really ought to if we're building them. Um, so that's what's kind of motivated us to become pro proactive in this field and to learn more about it. It is interesting, isn't it, that these points are not included in more traditional architecture knowledge. Is there a knowledge of materials lacking, do you feel? It's to do with materials, but it's also to do with the atmosphere, how things like air moves. It's a, it's a science-based yeah. thing, really, yeah. um, about how where moisture forms in walls and why and where dew points are when it's cold mm. or warm outside and how air moves around a space. And I think that that's, that's fine. Design is, is a really challenging thing to teach and it does take a long time. But at the same time, we're kind of the guardians of building new bits of cities and new bits of the world and investing huge amounts in material. You know, the, the construction industry is notoriously huge in its carbon footprint. And I think that there's a responsibility from our side as architects to understand how to make the buildings that we build last as long as they can do and be as sustainable as they can be from first principles. And I know that you previously lived in Iceland. 
Is this a technique that is suited to some areas of the world more than others? I would say Austria is the perfect climate. I've just come back from Austria and there's a lot of people building passive houses in Austria because it's sort of how they're building already and need to because of the some of the extremes in climate. I think actually it's, it's very applicable to a number of different climates. The PHPP modelling, so that the sort of specialist software modelling, takes into consideration what climate it is that you're building in and also against future climate data. So actually, I think the passive house standard is really applicable globally because of the varying climates that we're, we're experiencing and the extremes in climates that we're experiencing. I think the first house that was built with passive house principles in mind was actually in Saskatchewan in Canada on the prairie where they have, you know, plus 45 degrees in the summer and minus 45 degrees in the winter. So it's, it's very good in helping to regulate that temperature change and make the building require less energy kind of universally through that that extreme. Yeah, I was interested about your point for the need to power air movement. Am I right in thinking that this needs to run continually? Yes, yes, you are. And the amount of power that an MBHR system takes is incredibly low. And the benefits that it gives you is, I mean, ultimately you barely need a radiator in a house with an MBHR system. It's staying at a kind of constant temperature of about 20 degrees all year round. We're also looking into adding in sustainable energy sources in passive houses as well. So air source heat pumps, solar panels, I think the, the accessibility and price of those is now dropping so considerably that they're becoming something that's totally viable for the average residential house to, to start installing. This isn't the kind of only the, the mega mansion kind of things that, that can have solar panels now. So I think, yes, it does require energy to be running the MVHR system, but the benefits hugely outweigh the amount of energy it takes. Mm. And in terms of that as well, I think it's worth taking into consideration how people live in houses. There's this kind of the best planning of what a passive house is going to be. It's all modeled against perfect use, but then somebody moves in and they don't open the window at night and it does get overheated. So there's an element that the owner of the house or the, the client, the, the inhabitant has to kind of buy into this as well. That's what I mean about it being really motivated from the outset of the project that everybody's got to want to make a building that's going to perform to passive house standards through its life. Yes. You've got to understand, really, this is a living building, isn't it? And you've got to work with that. So one question I have is, how do you consider the materials in your designs? Are the designs limited in any way by having to use specific products? No, and I think this is one part that I'm really excited to kind of advocate for Passive House is that I think there's a reputation that's been built up around it because it is a new standard. And yes, there have been limited availability of products probably up up until now. But really, it's, it's not, it doesn't limit how you build a building. You can build a timber passive house, you can build a concrete passive house, you can build really any any method of construction can be considered as a passive house, provided that the detailing is is correct. The windows, yes, they're a bit limited, but again, you can get aluminium frame windows or timber frame windows. They can be designed in different ways. And I think that the aesthetics of what a passive house looks like is much wider ranging than potentially has been advertised. And that might be part of the reason that take up has been pretty low because clients go, well, I don't really want to build in this passive house. I want a, a bespoke, detailed, designed project. And I think there's a huge scope for some 
amazing pieces of architecture to passive house regulations, whether it's homes or schools or hospitals or art galleries, it, it's something that's really kind of applicable across disciplines. Are there very few manufacturers that actually bring materials like this to the marketplace of such high quality? Um, only specifically to do with some of the areas that are really key in passive house. I think the windows we've mentioned, a lot of the environmental systems can be quite limited. So where the MVHR system is sourced from. But in terms of the building materials themselves, you can use just a concrete block that you'd buy from Travis Perkins to build a passive house. It's really something that can be made much more affordably and much more accessibly. I think where the standard falls down is that it really is an energy standard. It's not a carbon standard. So there's not the requirement for you to consider where the materials are coming from or what their energy use is like. It's something that we do just because that's something that we're really interested in. So we source copper roofs that are made from 100% recycled copper or use lime render as a building material. I think this is where building regulations and even the passive house requirements just don't take any into consideration into where materials are sourced from. So yeah, you can get them from anywhere, but whether or not you should is a different question. You mentioned earlier that the occupier really needs to buy into being part of the passive house solution. So what is the typical return on investment in terms of energy savings and how much does this depend on the occupier themselves? So the occupier very much optimizes the savings that are going to be made. If the most savings can be made if the passive house is occupied as a passive house. And um, I think, as you mentioned, it's a really nice way of putting it to living building. So you have to sort of respond to it and work with it. The inflection point on the return of investment is obviously going to come in a lot quicker with current energy prices globally. The initial investment is going to be a little bit higher, but I think that there's now systems, there's a really interesting one in the UK called PH15, which is a precision cut timber frame. And these don't really cost that much more than a normal timber frame would cost for a building. The Most of the initial investment is in the environmental parts of the building. So things like the MVHR system, any air source heat pumps, they're the initial investment. And as with any energy supply or energy generation element of a building, they're the bits that are going to take the longer amount of time to pay back. But with current energy prices as they are, that's that's going to happen a lot quicker. And what are the most common issues that architects face that prevent them from achieving their passive house goals? Time. It takes more time to design a passive house. There's a lot more modeling required. There's quite a lot more thinking. It's not just a kind of design exercise. It's a performance exercise as well and strategy. It needs to have the right client on the project to be tolerant and supportive and really behind it as well to make sure that there is that time allowed to, to design it. The client needs to be behind the project. I think developer-led projects could do more. Now there seem to be very few developers that are turning to Passive House because they're not that interested in the long-term kind of payback on a building because they're going to sell the apartments and move on. And I think it would be nice to see more developer clients being supportive of things like a Passive House standard or an enhanced building regulation standard. And Passive House is entirely energy-focused. So why do you think using one criteria is enough, in your opinion, to reach a building's carbon goal? I don't think it is. Okay. <laughs> I really don't think it is. I think it's a really good step 
towards mm -hmm. it. Um, I think my main criticism is British building regulations don't try hard enough to achieve what is completely achievable. I think that actually energy standards should be much more layered and much more nuanced, that we should think more about materials. You know, the, the supply chains at the moment are really challenging anyway. It's <laughs> tricky just to get a bag of plaster in, in the UK right now, I'm sure it is globally. And so I don't think it takes that much more to just think about, well, where are we buying that plaster from? Where are we buying that timber from? Should we be using this virgin copper or should we try and find recycled copper? And I think there should be more legislation around it that doesn't just make it an optional thing that the cheapest buildings are built without it. I understand that in, in a housing crisis that the key thing is to get the buildings built, but we've got to think about them as long-term pieces of our cities rather than just as immediate revenue generation. And thinking about some of your projects now, for the Dorsal House project, the client said they wanted a house that pushed the possibilities of design beyond examples that they had seen. How did your design do this? They came to us and they said, we really want a passive house. We want people to walk past it and know that there's something different about it, but not necessarily that it's a passive house. So what was really strange about the way that we approached it, I think, is that passive house is very much a performance criteria. And a lot of passive houses are kind of tackled from performance first, which is is the right way to go about it. But we had a balance in the office of people that were trained in passive house and people that weren't trained in passive house. So there was a really nice back and forth between what is the design leading in terms of how they're going to use the space and what we want this to feel like and what we want the building to look like and how we want it to perform versus how is this going to reach this standard? What are the requirements for it from a kind of science perspective or from a technical perspective? So there was a really nice kind of push and pull. I think volumetrically, we've ended up with something that doesn't look like a typical building in any regard. And we're using a lot of materials that are really kind of not conventional for residential projects. And that was probably where the balance came in, that we're thinking about it as both a kind of design-led project and as a performance-based project. And what do you find is the best part of designing a passive house building? Oh, that's an interesting question. I've loved the um, balance of the scientific performance of the building and the geekery of how how air is going to move around it and how you're going to keep it completely sealed top to bottom and the challenge that that imposes when you construct the building versus how do you want it to look? There's a really nice push and pull between the two rather than as a designer, we kind of always want this blank slate of, of having a great idea, but it's really lovely when you've got a push and pull of how do you achieve this really, really difficult thing on a, a really tight site with lots of different kind of windows overlooking it or services underneath the site. There's a whole load of challenge there. Um, and that's what I think is, is a really brilliant opportunity for some excellent design. Thank you. That's been very interesting. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks so much for your questions. That was really enjoyable.